The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her on her way, and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. If you flip through the Guinness Book of World Records, you will eventually come to the name Glenn Wolf. Between 1926 and 1997, he attended, attended 29 weddings as the groom. This was not polygamy, he did it one at a time. His longest marriage lasted 11 years, his shortest, two and a half weeks. Now, lest any of us think it's kind of cool to be a record setter, listen to this paragraph from his obituary in the Los Angeles Times. Quote, Glenn Wolf did one thing in life and did it often. Marriage was his life's work, his mission, his lasting monument. But when he died penniless last month at a local nursing home, the body with the symbolic forearm tattoo of a tied knot went unclaimed. The man whose family tree sent branches and sub-branches in every direction, the man who married more often than Zsa Zsa Gabor, Elizabeth Taylor, and Henry VIII combined, the man who made 29 till-death-do-us-part promises, was singularly alone at the end. A life like Wolf's can strike us as kind of comedically eccentric, but in actuality, it was tragic. The only thing I take issue with in this obituary is that sentence, marriage was his life's work, his mission, his lasting monument. No. Divorce was his life's work, his lasting mission, his mission, his lasting monument. Glenn Wolf actually knew very little about marriage. Now, almost everyone in society would roll their eyes with us at someone like Wolf, at, at a life like this. No, no one's out there on the streets of Richmond, loose, holding up Glenn Wolf as a, a model of virtue. And yet, the operating logic that enables one man 
to break his wedding vows nearly 30 times is the same logic that pervades our world. Wolf was just particularly prolific at something our culture already values. Was he not just following his heart? Was he not just being true to himself? This morning, we we come to a famously fraught passage where where Jesus confronts head-on the topic of divorce, and in so doing, he unlocks for us the beauty of marriage. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. From the very beginning of this gospel, the earliest biography of Jesus written in, in the middle of the first century, Mark has been not just reporting on Christ's life, but bringing us face-to-face with the implications of his kingdom, his radical claims, his stunning miracles, and as we'll see again today, his disruptive teaching. I can imagine a, a variety of unhelpful ways that one might be tempted to hear a sermon on this disruptive topic. Oh, good. My spouse needs to hear this. Or, oh no, I'm just going to have to shut down this because this is just going to be too hard to hear. I mean, maybe it's a topic that is painful for you because you are a child of divorced parents, or maybe it's a topic where you've only heard teaching on it before that has left you feeling either angry or guilty. Meanwhile, others of you may be in a place where you're like, divorce? (laughs) My marriage is so sweet, we would never contemplate such a thing, but I hope it's helpful for some others. And of course, still others of you are single, and perhaps you think, I know this is an important topic, and I will engage with a message like this later in life when it's relevant. Before I give you the the sermon outline, I just want to acknowledge that that I'm aware that this is a topic to many in this room that is anything but theoretical. I mean, there are deep wounds, deep wounds and fears associated with it. But here's my challenge for you, wherever you may be coming from, lean in and listen, lean in and listen not on behalf of someone else, and not with your defenses up. Lean in and listen for your own good, because what you're ultimately being offered this morning, if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, is not thoughts from Matt Smethurst, but truth from Jesus Christ. And we all need his truth afresh. We all need his voice. We all need to bring our hearts before the light of his life-giving word. So in that spirit, here's what I think is the main thing this passage in Mark 10 is pressing on us. How you view marriage has everything to do with how you view God. How you view marriage has everything to do with how you view God. We'll think about this in three points as we move through the story's dialogue. First, let's talk divorce. It's verses one to four. Second, no, let's talk marriage. It's verses five to nine. And third, 
okay, but what about remarriage? Verses 10 to 12. Let's talk divorce. No, let's talk marriage. Okay, but what about remarriage? First, let's talk divorce. Verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across, and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Our focus goes immediately to the end of the uh, sentence, right? To the divorce question. But we, we shouldn't mi- miss what immediately precedes it. This is not just a divorce question. It's a disingenuous question. The Pharisees, Mark tells us, are on the scene to test Jesus. This isn't an honest inquiry. It's a trap. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they're, they're smuggling into this question, as we're going to see, a lot of unspoken words. At, a, at the time, there, there was a swirling debate around a particular Old Testament passage, which is why Jesus replies in verse 3, what did Moses command you? The Pharisees, I think at this point, look at each other. Things are going just as they planned. They, they exchange a, a confident smile. He, he referenced Moses. He gets what, what is going on. And so they, re, they respond. Verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of, of divorce and send her away. In other words, he's fine with it. So what about you, Rabbi? Do you disagree with Moses? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 24. You can keep your finger in Mark 10, but turn with me briefly to Deuteronomy 24. This is the passage they're appealing to, which had become a a raging source of debate among different rabbis. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Well, 1,500 years later, at the time of Jesus, there there were two schools of thought, and the controversy turned on the meaning of that little phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a woman becomes displeasing to her husband because he finds, quote, something indecent, something indecent about her. One noted rabbi named Shammai insisted that indecent means scandalous. It means adultery. Another popular rabbi, Hillel, said, no, 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 no. Indecent can mean anything. Wives, by the time of Jesus, were being divorced for talking too loudly, for burning the biscuits, I'm not exaggerating. See, when we think of the Pharisees, 
we think of what? We think of strict, hyper-conservative men. But when it came to this topic, conveniently, many of these husbands were quite permissive. They loved the license that Rabbi Hillel's interpretation, the, the second guy, they loved the license that that interpretation afforded them to dispense of their wives the way you might throw away a paper plate. So do you see why they're trying to trap Jesus? Because if they can catch him, if they can just catch him, they'll diminish him. The moment he picks a side is the moment he loses influence with the other group. But there's something else going on here, too. You you can turn back to to Mark chapter 10. According to to verse 1, Jesus has returned where? It doesn't say it explicitly, but the geographical markers make it plain, especially to first century ears. Jesus has returned to the territory of Herod. Remember the last time we encountered Herod? Chapter 6, when John the Baptist dared to speak truth to power and say, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have another man's wife. That is not a God-honoring marriage. Next page, John's head is on a platter. And here, four chapters later, knowing what had happened to John when he spoke about marriage, it's likely the Pharisees are trying to out Jesus in Herod's backyard so that word will get back to him and so that Jesus will be thrown into prison or worse. So what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to extricate himself from this trap? Point two, no, let's talk marriage. Let's talk marriage. Pharisees at this point are, are still, they're, they're feeling pretty good. They think they have Jesus cornered. They've answered his question. They've appealed to scripture. Moses says divorce is fine, Jesus. You know we take our Bibles seriously. Why else would we have all these divorce certificates in our pockets? Jesus replies, verse five, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. No, divorce is not fine. The only reason you have those certificates is because your forefathers' hearts had ossified like concrete, just like yours. Moses never, Jesus is saying, but Moses never condoned or celebrated divorce. He simply conceded that it was a reality in a world of hard-hearted people like you. You want to talk about your proof text, Deuteronomy 24? It's about regulating divorce, regulating divorce, not approving it. Your pockets are filled with something that was never part of God's original design. Verse 6, Jesus continues, But at the beginning of creation, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. (laughs) The Pharisees are like, 
let's go to Deuteronomy and talk about divorce. Jesus is like, let's go to Genesis and talk about marriage. And so he takes them back to the very first page of their Bibles. Three things that I want you to see here in verses 6 to 9. So verses 6 to 9, three little subpoints, three things that I want you to notice. Number one, gender is embedded in God's creational design. Gender is embedded in God's creational design. Verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God, quote, made them male and female. The Bible could not be more clear. Jesus could not be more clear. There are only two genders. And and while it's certainly true, hear me clearly, it is certainly true that there will be many different cultural expressions of what it may look like to be masculine or feminine, maleness and femaleness themselves are not social constructs. To be male or female is a divine gift a divine gift, not always an easy gift for everyone, but a divine gift designed by a loving and wise God for your good. As I was studying this passage this week, it hit me for the first time. I never noticed this before, but it hit me. I'm not sure why Jesus included verse 6. He could have taken them straight to Genesis with verse 7. Verse 7 was the more obviously relevant place to go because they're talking about what? Marriage. And verse 7 is all about marriage. Verse 6 is not. Verse 6 is not about marriage. It's about gender. So why include it in a first century debate that has everything to do with marriage and nothing to do with gender? And then it struck me, maybe that's the point. Maybe Jesus is making it clear, especially for the sake of future cultures like ours, that you actually can't understand marriage apart from gender. Now, having said that, I have immense, immense pastoral sympathy and love for those who Uh, And by the way, this includes personal friends of mine. This includes people that I know in this very room who struggle with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction. This is not an easy teaching, and we shouldn't act like it's easy to accept or obey. But I am pointing out what is plain in the passage. That's my job, (laughs) pointing out what is plain Jesus goes out of his way to underscore gender difference in the breath before he talks about marriage. And if you think about it, gender is actually more foundational than marriage. Gender shows up in Genesis 1. Marriage doesn't arrive until Genesis 2. And even in the future, Jesus says elsewhere, marriage will have an expiration date Gender will not. In the world to come, your resurrected body will be male or female, but the only wedding you'll be attending is the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
By the way, if, if, if you're here this morning and you are not following Jesus, which is just another way of saying you have yet to turn away from your sin and put your trust in Christ, first of all, we are thrilled you're here. And second of all, we want you to know that you are not yet on the guest list of this heavenly wedding I just referenced. But if you repent and believe in Jesus to save you and forgive you for your sin and restore you into a relationship with God, which can happen today just by simply trusting him, then you can have confidence that you will be at that future eternal heavenly wedding, not just as an observer, not just as a celebrant, but as part of the bride. Marriage, this is number, number two. So the first is gender is embedded in God's creational design. Number two thing I want you to see, marriage is about comprehensive oneness. Marriage is about comprehensive oneness. Verse seven, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now Jesus turns the page from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 and observes, as one author put it, that a wedding is a welding, like two metals being fused into one. Ultimately, this occurs in the sexual union that consummates a marriage, two distinct lives coming together and forming, as it were, a third entity, a new family unit pregnant with the possibility of new life. This is why sex is meant to be reserved for the secure confines of marriage. It's not an arbitrary restriction. God is not just a killjoy looking for things to do to make life miserable. No, it's about security. It's not an arbitrary restriction. It's a gracious protection because giving yourself sexually to someone is meant to express something. Giving yourself sexually to someone is meant to express that you have also given yourself holistically to them. And therefore, the alternative, when you give your body but withhold most everything else, it robs both of you of the gift of being, the sacred gift of being fully known, fully exposed, and fully loved, naked and not ashamed. You know, I couldn't make it through this sermon without quoting from Tim Keller we prayed about earlier, who went to be with the Lord on Friday, he captured this dynamic vividly. Quote, sex apart from marriage, listen carefully to, to, the, to the imagery of this quote, sex apart from marriage becomes a product we consume as we look for someone attractive enough in quality and low enough in price. If the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can walk away because there is no covenant. But if sex comes only with the radical self-giving and whole life commitment of marriage, that takes sex off the market, as it were, and makes it priceless. See, the security of a covenant 
means that you don't have to be in a consumer relationship where you're constantly in marketing and promotion. Contracts of convenience appeal at first. We're all tempted by contracts of convenience, but they don't offer any lasting security, only a binding covenant. Only a binding covenant gives you the security that your heart desires. The covenant of marriage, as reflected in the sexual union, is meant to express something bigger than itself. It's meant to express and embody whole life, comprehensive oneness. Marriage is about comprehensive oneness. Number three, marriage is ultimately a divine work. Marriage is ultimately a divine work. Verse 9, therefore what God, not the state, God has joined together, let no one separate. The word therefore is key. Jesus is saying, because of verses 6 to 8, because marriage is the comprehensive, all-encompassing, life-giving union of a husband and wife, in other words, because it's really that sacred, therefore you should honor the architect. Or to put it in modern jargon, the institution of marriage is not a blank canvas. It's not a blank canvas for your self-fulfillment and self-expression. It is a divine canvas with clear borders and distinct brushstrokes. God is the architect and the artist. Marriage was his idea, his invention. We don't own the patent, so we don't get to act like we do. And his masterpiece of human marriage, what he joins together, is not something to be tinkered or tampered with. This means your marriage is not finally about you. It's meant to be an arena. Your marriage is meant to be an arena, a showcase for the glory of the architect and the artist, which means that the secret to a high view of marriage is to cultivate and maintain a high view of God. See, when we read these words, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It, it makes one thing very clear. God is actually not a passive observer in your marriage. He's an active participant. Though a wedding officiant may pronounce two people husband and wife, it is God who joins them together. Though the state may recognize marriage as a legal contract, it is God who joins husband and wife together. Though they perform an act that unites them as one flesh, it is God who joins them together. He is more invested in your marriage than you are. When a bride and groom join hands at a, at a wedding, they can imagine, they can rightly imagine a third hand wrapping around both of theirs, uniting them. Which means divorce is not just you pulling away from your spouse. It is resting your hand away from God. If you think about it, there, there's a word of application basically every stage of life, just in verse 9. And if you're single and longing to be married, which is a good desire, you should be encouraged this morning as you look at Mark 10, verse 9, that finding a spouse is not finally on you. 
Yes, you should be faithful. Yes, you should be intentional. But in the final analysis, if God wants you married, if it would be the best thing for you, then he will make it happen. If you're happily married today, this verse should prompt you to thank God for what he's given you. And it should humble you. Because guess what? Your amazing marriage was not ultimately your doing. It's God's work. If you're struggling in marriage, this verse should encourage you. Because you can trust that God sees you and he loves you and he has purposes for you, even in the pain. He is the architect after all. See, marriage is ultimately a, a divine work, which means that every one of your marriages in this room, every one of your canvases bears the signature. If you look carefully at the bottom right corner, every one of the marriage canvases in this room bears the signature of the divine artist. Point three, I'm done with the subpoints. Major point three. Let's talk marriage, or I'm sorry, let's talk divorce. No, let's talk marriage. Number three, okay, but what about remarriage? What about remarriage? Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. You can imagine them rather shell-shocked at this soaring view of marriage with God at the center and gingerly, asking afterward, uh, Jesus, you've convinced us. We, we, we see now that divorce is not trivial. It's terrible. It's not how things were meant to be in the beginning. But what about those who have already submitted the certificate or already gotten married again? Verse 11 Jesus answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is another hard saying. If you get an illegitimate divorce, you're not automatically free to remarry. That's what Jesus says. The, the girl you left is still your bride in the eyes of the one who brought you together. So if you go off and marry number two, you are committing adultery against number one. You're, you're sinning not just against God, but against her. And you're not making up for the sin of divorce. You're compounding the sin of divorce through that wrongful remarriage. One commentator makes this interesting observation. Quote, what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage is no less revolutionary than his private explanation back in chapter 7 of food laws after the Pharisees raised the issue of washing hands. There Jesus allows what the Pharisees prohibit, eating with defiled hands. Here he prohibits what they allow, easy divorce and remarriage. Now we're not going to turn there, but... In both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, 9, 
Jesus makes clear there is an exception in which divorce becomes morally permissible, though it's still tragic. And that's in the case of adultery. It doesn't mean if your spouse sexually cheats on you that you must get a divorce. It does not mean that, but it, it, it simply means that you may. But why doesn't this exception clause appear in Mark? Well, as I thought about it, I, I've just come to the conclusion, I, I think it's because his audience would have just assumed it. And of course, Mark is the master of brevity. See, his Jewish audience knew there were scriptural grounds for divorce. That wasn't the debate. The debate was, can we divorce our, our wives for any reason? But I reference the exception clauses because for, for the sake of pastoral application, it's important to say that I, I do believe that as horrible as every divorce is, there are certain times when it's a valid option and perhaps even the way of wisdom in a fallen world. In the elder's view, divorce can only check that rare box, that morally permissible box, when it involves a fundamental breach of the marriage covenant. That's the case with adultery, Matthew 5 and 19. That's the case with being abandoned by an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Both of those are clear, but I, we also think that, th that this can be the case. This can hold in other horrific scenarios such as abuse or persistent neglect that can amount to a willful one-way breakage of the covenant. And whether the divorce was biblical, whether the divorce was biblical, that is morally permissible, will bear on whether it's also permissible to remarry. I don't have the ability in this message to chart out every hypothetical. The reality is that life is messy and pastoral wisdom cannot be reduced to a flow chart. This is why you need to pray for your pastors. Pray for us. That, that we would have the wisdom to size up difficult situations, to have the courage to do what's right, and the sensitivity to know the best approach. Dealing with a broken marriage, uh, you don't have to be a pastor to know this, but dealing with a broken marriage can be like trying to diffuse a bomb who, whose wires have slowly coiled their way, sometime, sometimes over the course of years, around a husband and wife. And of course, both husband and wife feel constricted and threatened by the bomb. What makes it hard is they're convinced the other one armed it. But I can't stop the sermon here. I can't stop the sermon here lest I be taken to imply that there's always equal fault on both sides. That's not the case. And I want to directly say to the husbands in this room, husbands in this room, as the leaders in your home, there is a unique moral responsibility and weight on you to make sure your marriage is good. Not saying you're God and you can totally control the health of your marriage, but there is a unique responsibility on you to ensure 
that the temperature of your home, the mood of your home and of your marriage is one that is life-giving. To make sure that you're loving and caring for, or to use the language of Ephesians 5, nourishing and cherishing your bride whom God loves. Oh, friends, I want you to see something about this passage that's easily overlooked. Namely, how much it protects and upholds the dignity of women. Who were the Pharisees focused on in verse 3? Not women. (laughs) Hey, Jesus, a man can get out of a marriage for any reason, right? Not realizing that Moses' regulation was not so much a license for husbands as it was a merciful provision for wives. Think about it. Without the divorce certificate requirement, a husband could just kick his wife out without giving her any written evidence that she's no longer married, which would have left her extremely vulnerable, especially in the first century world and before that in the time of Moses. That's verse 3. And then in verse 6, when Jesus takes the Pharisees even further back to page one of their Bibles, he underlines this, at the beginning of creation, that is, before sin messed everything up, God made them, quote, male and female. Not male above female, male and female, equal in value and dignity and worth. And then verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Against her. She is the violated party. This was unthinkable. This was revolutionary in the Roman world. Remember, what is Mark's gospel doing? Mark's gospel is giving us Peter's memoirs. Just think about this. What did Peter learn about women and how to view women after three years of walking closely with Jesus Christ? 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, be considerate. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Why? He says, because they are heirs with you, not below you, heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Yes, there are good authority structures built in to God's created order, but when it comes to intrinsic value, once again, husbands, when it comes to intrinsic value, you are not above her. In the eyes of God, you are beside her. In her remarkable book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, quote, the way Jesus treated women tore up the belief that women are innately inferior to men, a belief that was pervasive in the ancient world. In Jesus, we find a man who never had a sexual relationship, but who loved women so well that they'd leave everything to follow him. We find a man who turned his back on the religiously powerful men of his day and had his longest recorded private conversation with a religiously despised woman. If we could read the Gospels through first century eyes, Jesus' treatment of women would knock us to our knees. We shouldn't be surprised that women have been flocking to him ever since. 
and flocking to him they have. As one historian observes, Christianity was not mocked in the early centuries for being anti-women. It was mocked for being so pro-women. Now, what does all this have to do with divorce and remarriage? Am I just up here, like, seriously off-roading? No. See, the Pharisees were only interested in the husband's right to divorce, not how the wife or children might be affected, and not recognizing that in certain cases, guess what, Pharisees? A wife can also end the marriage. As I said before, uh, Scripture is, is clear about adultery and abandonment by, a, by an unbeliever as grounds for potential divorce. If you're in either situ- situation, Uh, please talk to the elders. But also, if you're married, if you're married and you ever feel physically endangered by your spouse, especially you wives, please don't keep that to yourself. As, As tempting as that might be, as scary as it might be to bring that into the light, please find someone in this church to share that with We, the the shepherds of this church, want to protect the sisters entrusted to our care. We're not law enforcement, so if there's any alleged criminal activity or violence, we're not going to try to just handle that ourselves. We're going to help you contact the police. And if you're in physical danger, our first priority will be to get you safe. No, by the way, none of this means that we're going to discard biblical principles of justice and due process. In a fallen world, false accusations do occur. These are complicated situations. But what I want to be crystal clear about this morning in light of this particular topic of divorce is that while no husband is flawless and every husband may at times be harsh we will not at rcbc we will not tolerate persistent unrepentant bullies and if you're married to one please let us know or let someone that you trust know Or if you often find yourself, just if you're honest, wishing you could get divorced, that's something to bring into the light and let a trusted person here know. Some churches only, and and I'm sure there are good intentions behind this, a desire to be faithful to scripture and all the rest, but some churches effectively tell sisters in horrific marriages to bully husbands, you need to forgive. You need to forgive you need to forgive, which is another way of saying you need to stay. But those two things are not always the same in a fallen world. Divorce should always be the last resort. After all other options have been exhausted. But according to the Bible, there are certain situations in a fallen world where even the amputation of divorce is the best course. But all that said, and and those are important caveats, (laughs) the emphasis of Mark 10 is not on the exceptions. The emphasis of Mark 10 is on the permanence of marriage. Divorce is not a light thing. It's a heavy thing. It's a massive thing because marriage was created to reflect God. 
It was created by God for his glory to showcase to the world something about what he is like. And so we dare not treat it lightly. And in conclusion, that's the most important thing you could possibly know about human marriage. Remember I said it's not a blank canvas for self-fulfillment or self-expression. It's a divine canvas with borders and brushstrokes. And if you look carefully enough into the painting, you will start to see the outline of Jesus Christ's own love for his bride, the church. That's what it's finally about. Sure, this sermon is about marriage, but there's a sense in which every marriage is a sermon. Good marriages preach, bad marriages preach. Bad marriages say things that are not true about Christ in the church. In other words, they broadcast a lie about the gospel. Jesus will never abandon us. Amen? Jesus will never abandon us. Divorce suggests otherwise. If you want to see the place, friends, if you want to see the place where marital faithfulness shines brightest, Look no further than a little hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. On the cross, Jesus set the standard for spousal loyalty. Amid excruciating pain and agony, when he could have summoned a legion of angels, when it would have been the easiest thing in the world to leave, this husband stayed. And we're here this morning because of it. And to the degree we believe it and the beauty of it melts our hearts, we will be freed to live and to look at those who we're married to and say the most loving thing possible. You are priority number two. And even when things get rough, not if, even when things get rough, I'm Staying because that's what our Savior did, and this marriage is finally about Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, a topic like marriage, divorce, remarriage evokes all kinds of feelings, more than can be addressed or spoken directly to in a single sermon. So Lord, we pray this morning that that you would bind up wounds, that you would calm fears, that you would grant courage where that's needed, comfort where that's needed, hope where that's needed, and that you would help all of our hearts, Lord, as we think about this massive topic, which has been so distorted in our cultural moment. We pray that we would all see that marriage is ultimately about showing us a picture of gospel grace. And we pray that the marriages at RCBC would be faithful representations of that. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen.